Well, uh, it's on days you have good news and sometimes you have a lot of good news to share. And so I got even more. Um, last weekend was an, an, an unbelievable weekend here at the Summit Church. And Easter's always a, a big time for us, but it was an exceptional weekend last weekend. I think the largest attendance, largest attendance we've ever had at the Summit Church. Um, there were 16,352 people uh, that were part of one of our Summit Church services last weekend. Um, 73 professions of faith that we know of last weekend, which is even amazing. Um, you know, it's God does what God's going to do and he gets the credit for it. But if there's one human reason why I think we had uh, that kind of attendance and that kind of response, the one human reason is that so many of you were faithful to reach out and invite your one. I heard story after story of people saying, hey, my one came with me. The family of my one came with me. Uh, I met many of your ones last weekend. Uh, it's been encouraging throughout the last week, just hearing stories, people sending me stories of like, let me tell you what God did in the heart of my one. Um, and so it's, it's amazing. And I wanna thank you for that or your faithfulness to the Great Commission. Um, because of your faithfulness, um, things like this, uh, I, I saw a, a tweet where somebody tagged Summit RDU in the tweet. It was a girl who came to our first Easter service on Wednesday. She said, tonight I went to an Easter service um, by Summit RDU on the UNC campus and I felt like I was hearing God for the very first time ever. And she came, became a Christian, put faith in Christ. Uh, so I wanna thank you for that. By the way, not just here. Well, you, I'll let you clap one more time, but just wait to the end of this. Um, not, um, not just here. You know, a lot of our, our church plants have, um, have also just seen some incredible things. Our center church that we just planted in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, our, one of our most recent plants, had the unheard of attendance for a new church plant of 224 at Easter, had two professions of faith. And Josh Miller, the pastor said, maybe best of all, he said, one of the guys that we just led to Christ, he just became a Christian in January, came to the service and brought 36 people with him. Okay, so that's worth celebrating, I think, as you think about... Um, just what's happening. And I, you know what, all told, I think it's a, good, it's a good year to live in Charlottesville, Virginia right about now. So we're grateful to be a part of it. You got your Bible this weekend. If you'll take them out and open them to Romans chapter six. If you brought your Romans journal, if you will turn in that to page 42, if you have that. Uh, how many of you are still enjoying our study verse by verse, section by section through the book of Romans? Raise your hand. Uh, you better put your hand up because that's what I'm doing for the rest of the year, okay? Um, by the way, if you're new with us and you're just joining us, you notice these people have these cool nifty little journals and you're like, I wish I was a cool kid and I had one. Unfortunately, I don't have any more of the actual paper copies for you, but if you will go to summitchurch.com, you can download it for free. You can print it out and you can be a cool kid also and bring it with you. There's all kinds of um, uh, uh, study helps in there and there's places for you to journal and um, uh, daily Bible reading types of prompts and stuff for your small group. Uh, we wanna make that free of charge to you. So go to summitchurch.com and you can get a hold of it, okay? Romans chapter six. Last weekend, we saw in the first few verses of Romans six that, that Paul established the point that a true believer could not continue to willfully and habitually pursue sin because, Paul says, a true believer is somebody who has turned over control of their lives to Christ. And when Christ comes into your heart, he breaks the power of sin over you by putting into the middle of your heart the power of resurrection. Thus, Paul concludes, if you are still willfully pursuing sin, it means that you never really let Christ take control because when Christ comes in, he changes you permanently. But, but, but Paul realizes that the experience of every believer, including himself, in fact, he would say in chapter seven, he's gonna say most especially myself, my experience is a brutal struggle against sin. 
where half the time I feel like I'm not doing that well. Over the next couple of chapters, Paul is gonna talk about how even as an apostle, he feels weak, how his life is a constant fight between what he knows he ought to do and what his sinful body is pulling him to do. In this chapter, chapter six, he's gonna ask a question that every sincere follower of Jesus asks at some point. If the power of the resurrection actually came into my heart, if it is there in my heart, why do I still struggle so much with saying no to sin? And why do I still seem to love some of the wrong things? And why is it that I can't develop the, the courage to follow my convictions sometimes? And why don't I love God more? And why am I not more naturally generous? And why do I, you know, my mind wander in the midst of prayer? And why do I have trouble paying attention in the midst of sermons? Like what's wrong with me? And how can I change? I want you to be clear that Paul in this chapter is addressing sincere Christians. Okay, look at it real quick, verse 17. Paul describes these people as those who obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching they received. That means the gospel. These are not like, you know, fringe people who are, are not really that committed. These are the real deal. They are, are not JV Christians. They are, are full on Christians. They're not fake. Y'all, I will tell you, I find these chapters so encouraging. Some of the most encouraging maybe in the whole Bible. Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a sincere follower of Jesus, don't you find yourself frustrated a lot at how little progress you seem to have made in the Christian life? Don't you find yourself kind of overwhelmed sometimes? Like, why am I still attracted to that? Why is it that, that I still feel so weak? Why can't I make myself do the right thing? Why, do I, why don't I love God more? Why am I so stingy all the time? Why don't, am I not just more naturally generous? You ever wonder that about yourself? I mean, I wonder that about you. Uh, no, no, I'm kidding. I, I wonder that about me. I wonder that about me a lot too. Chapter six and seven, particularly chapter seven, which we'll get to next weekend. Um, chapter six and seven are Paul at his most vulnerable. What Paul reveals about himself in these chapters may surprise you. It will definitely encourage you. These chapters, y'all, are crucial in understanding what the Christian life is like. My dad, in fact, they are so crucial that my dad paid each of my kids $100 if they would memorize Romans chapter 6. Now, some of y'all are like, well, that's a memorization program I can get down with. Can I get your dad's email address? Sure. His email address is lingreer at getyourgreedyhandsoffmyinheritance.com, okay? Uh, so you can email him there. In chapter six, Paul's gonna lay out his theology for how he says we change, how the power of change actually comes into us. He says it begins by embracing in your core the new identity that God has given to you. In preaching on this chapter, Tony Evans, who was one of my favorite preachers, um, he tells the story of a guy who went to see his therapist. And he goes into his therapist, the therapist says, what seems to be the problem? And he says, man, I just, I just like, I just, he goes, when I go to the supermarket to buy food, I just have this incredible urge to go to the dog food aisle. And um, I just, this voice inside me saying, go to the dog food aisle. So I go to the dog food aisle. When I get there, he says, I always start looking at the pictures of the little dogs on the, on the dog food bag. And I think, man, it just looks so much fun. Like I could just be there frolicking around with the dogs without a care in the world. And he says, then just almost without being able to control myself, I rip open the dog food bag and I, I scoop out a big thing and I just gobble up a bunch of dog food right there in the supermarket aisle. And he says, sometimes I get so happy, I yelp and I bark and I will even lay down on my back and ask total strangers to scratch my belly um, as they're walking by. And, and the, uh, the therapist said, well, that really does seem like it's a problem. How long have you been like this? And the man says, well, 
ever since I've been a puppy. Um, so, yo, when Tony Evans told it, it was so much funnier. Um, and I've been working on it, and I just, this is the last service, I'm going to hang it up. Um, but the point is, it was, you had to be there. Uh, Tony Evans says, he says, what Paul is saying is something similar to what this therapist is about to say to this man, and that is some things are more or deeper than behavior modification. Some things go back to the core of how you see yourself, and it starts with a recognition of your identity. That's what Paul is saying in verse 11, chapter six. That's where he turns. Look at verse 11. Likewise, you also, he says, you believers, you should reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now that word reckon is the Greek word logizomai, and it is a word that you have seen before. It's a word that Paul uses in chapter four. Some translations will write that as count. Some will write it as consider. I prefer the word reckon. Now, this is not reckon like Southerners using it sometimes like, well, I reckon it's going to rain later. Not that reckon. This reckon means to count or to consider one thing as if it were another thing. It's an accounting term. I've heard it described like um, a wild card in poker. Um, you know, in, in poker, you can take a wild card and say, okay, this joker from this point on is no longer the joker. It's now the ace of spades. And no, of course, I don't play poker. I, the only card games I play are Bible charades or the left behind version of Uno. Okay, so, so you don't have to send me the email on that. Um, but, but it's a wild card. It means you look at one thing and consider it to be something else. That's what Paul is saying here with this word reckon. He says, when, in Romans 4, Paul says, when you reckon, when God, excuse me, um, when you claim Jesus as your sin bearer, then you put your faith in him, God reckons your faith to be righteousness. When you trust Jesus as the one who died in your place for your sins and you, you claim him as your own, then God reckons that faith to be righteousness. It's not that it is righteousness, it's that, that God gives you Christ's righteousness because you're trusting in Jesus. Well, in the same way, now Paul in Romans chapter six, he flips it and says, now it's your turn to do the reckoning. Right? God reckoned your faith to be righteous. Now you, when you reckon yourself as dead to sin, in other words, you believe that God did what he said he did when he saved you. Um, when you do that, God will use that reckoning of yours to infuse the power of new life into you. In other words, just as faith is the means by which you receive justification in the Christian life, so continued faith is the means by which you access the power for sanctification. Most of you thought, okay, well, I received Christ by faith, but after that, growing in Christ, that's on me. That's a lot of effort, okay? And Paul says, nope, just like it was faith by which you, you, you were reckoned righteous in God's sight, now it's continued faith that you use to release the power of sanctification in you. Here's how it works, okay? Just to be clear, when you put faith in Christ as a substitute for our sin, God reckons your faith as righteousness, okay? Here's the second part. As you reckon yourself dead to sin, you believe that God did what he said he did, God infuses into you the power of new life. If you're writing stuff down, this third one is the key here. In other words, just as we believed our way into justification, so we believe our way into the power of sanctification. Believing in the Christian life is the way of releasing power. How do you release power in your Christian life? It doesn't come through effort. It comes through believing what God says is true and believing what God says is true is the means by which he releases the power of resurrection in you. 
Now, some of you are like, okay, well, I've done that though. And I didn't feel the power of the resurrection to me. I didn't get little tingly feelings. My hair didn't stand up. I don't feel dead to sin suddenly. In fact, sin and wrong desires felt very much alive in me. Right, I get that. But as you continue to believe it, God uses the faith in Christ's finished work to transform you. Remember from chapter four, Abraham was the example Paul keeps bringing up. He's like, hey, you remember at 90 years old, in fact, 99 years old, after a lifetime of infertility, God declared to Abraham that he was gonna have a son. Not just any son, by the way, a son that was gonna father a great nation. Now you go back and read that in Genesis 12 and there's nothing in that chapter that indicates that when God said that to Abraham, Abraham was like, you know, now that you say that, I have been feeling unusually frisky the last few weeks. And so I believe what you had just said. No, Romans says that Abraham believed what God said, even when he didn't feel it, even though he knew that his equipment was way past the expiration date, so to speak. And as Abraham believed that, Romans 4 said, he received strength to be able to conceive Isaac. So Paul says, you will also receive the strength to walk in righteousness as you continue to believe that God has made you dead to sin, just like he said. Yo, listen, this is not some kind of mental trick I'm throwing at you where you, like the power of positive thinking, where you say, I'm brave enough, I'm brave enough, I'm brave enough. And you say it so many times that you suddenly become brave enough or, you know, I'm good looking and I'm smart and doggone it, people like me. And then you start to believe that. This is not that kind of garbage. This is actual power that God infuses into you when you believe that God has done what God said he did. You see, faith, Paul said in Romans 4, is believing God when he calls into existence things that do not yet exist like entire nations out of an infertile old man. When you believe something like that and you believe, I don't feel righteous, but I believe that God has made me righteous. At that point, God releases the power to be righteous in you. You know, listen, here's the big hangup we have with the Christian life. We always wanna feel first and then believe second. And God says, nope, usually you're gonna believe first and then you'll feel later. You don't feel your way into your beliefs. You're gonna believe your way into your feelings. In the Christian life, power comes through believing. Believing in the righteous identity God has declared over you releases the power to live up to that identity in you. Faith is the means by which God releases the power. Does that make sense? That's why Satan began each of his temptations of Jesus in the wilderness with an odd little phrase. Remember this? Have you, have you seen this before? It's really strange. Matthew 4, every temptation begins with, if you are the son of God. Why would he start a temptation that way? Well, if you read the previous chapter, God had declared over Jesus at the baptism, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before Satan brings out the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the, the, you know, the, um, the, the hunger of his body, what Satan does is he makes Jesus or he tries to get Jesus to question his identity because he knows that once he rattles Jesus at his core in his identity, he's, much, he's gonna be much more open to the lusts of the flesh. And so he begins each temptation by saying, hey, if you really are the son of God, that is a pattern for how he tempts you. Listen, Satan will do whatever he's gotta do to take your eyes off the new identity God has given you. And before he brings out the small guns of alcohol and pornography or sex or some kind of compromise, what he's going to do is bring out the big gun of, are you really who God says you are? And so he's gonna do that by bringing up past sins and present struggles and making you feel just like you just, by the way, all the stuff he's gonna bring up is true. He's gonna be like, hey, remember how badly you messed up that relationship, remember that? Hey, and remember, you, you, how could you call yourself a beloved son or daughter of God and still struggle that much with that sin? Really? 
Now, there's just no way. Maybe he'll kind of dangle a carrot out there in front of you. He'll be like, maybe you'll get there soon. But right now, there's no way that you can think that God is approving of you, that God accepts you, that you're a beloved son or daughter, not somebody with all that messed up stuff in your life. And so just try a little harder. Try maybe another week or two, and then you'll get there. And y'all, the moment you start believing that, he's already got you because he is now taking your eyes off of what God has done in you and what God has promised for you. And he's put them back on what you can do. And that's gonna lead you to despair every time. The power of the Christian life begins by believing what God has declared, even when it feels impossible. Because faith is believing God as he calls into existence things that don't exist yet. And what he has declared over you is you are fully righteous in his sight. And you've got the power of the resurrection in you and you are dead to sin. And that power of the resurrection is your future. And as you believe that, it becomes true. He releases in you the power of the new life. You say, well, pastor, I don't have a righteous record. If you knew me, you wouldn't say that. And I don't feel very righteous. That's not what God bases the declaration on. He doesn't base it on you. He doesn't base it on your potential. He doesn't base it on your past. He bases it on Jesus's finished work. And so he looks at you and says, this is who you are in my sight. This is what he declares. One of the best illustrations I've ever um, heard of this came from my second daughter when she was eight years old. I've told this story before, but it's so good, I gotta repeat it. Um, we were um, doing our devotions one night and around the same time we were watching The Voice as a family. And you know, The Voice, if you've ever watched that show, they had this, basically the blind auditions where um, the singers are singing and you got the four judges and they got their, their chairs turned where they can't see you. And if they like what they hear, then they hit that button that spins around and says, I want you. Okay, and my daughter says, she says, she, as I was going through something about the gospel, she said, dad, it's like, it's like the gospel is like God hit the button and turned around the chair and said, I want you before we even started singing. And I was like, that is a pretty good illustration of what the gospel is. God did not wait to hear how good or bad your voice was. He didn't think, oh, that's somebody that's got potential. I can use that person on my team. He just, by an act of his choice, he hit that thing and said, I choose you. And you're like, but I got a terrible voice. And he's like, I don't care because I am going to make you in my image and I'm going to use my power to do it. I don't need your talent. I don't need your past because my declaration got Jesus out of the grave and my declaration can change your life. And Paul says, you start, you start by reckoning yourself dead to sin like God said you are, even if you don't feel it. All right, that's the first command. Second command, Paul builds this whole chapter around two commands. Here's your second one, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as as instruments for unrighteousness, but you present, there's your one word command, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That's his command. Now you gotta present. He explains why in the next verse, verse 14. For sin will not rule over you anymore because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. What that means is now that Christ is at the center of your heart, sin can't control you anymore because Christ is there. It's there at the middle. Now, that wasn't true of you before you were a Christian. Before, you were, before Christ came in, follow this, you couldn't not sin. That's what Romans 1 said. We were totally given over to sin. We could no more stop sinning than a drowning man could you know, refuse a gasp of air if you pulled the man up out of the water right before he suffocated. You, just, you had to sin, you crave sin. That's not true anymore because Christ has come to take the center place of your heart. But he says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to somebody as obedient slaves, 
You're going to be slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Even though Jesus is at the center, you're still in this sinful body and sin is always going to be working for mastery in your life. And if you let sin go and you don't pay attention to it, it's going to slowly and incrementally try to regain control over you. Here's the way I think about all this, if this is helpful. When the um, allied troops marched into Berlin and they conquered Berlin in World War II, at that point, the Axis powers were broken. Nazism was officially crushed, okay? Um, but, but even after the allied forces had taken over Berlin, there were still pockets of German soldiers throughout the countryside and down through France, and a lot of them kept fighting on. Even though the Nazi war machine had been broken, even though they were out of ammunition, um, you know, there was no more, the seat of power and the communication was destroyed, right? The allied forces were there. These German forces kept fighting and they kept harrying and harassing a lot of the citizens and the allied forces as well. Paul says, this is what's happened in your Christian life. Jesus is at the seat of power now, but sin is still present there in your body and it's always going to be working to get back in control. So you gotta be fighting it because it is constantly on the move in your life. Listen to me, sin is a predator and it is always on the move. And there's a bunch of you that think, oh, it's not, you know, I got some areas of compromise. I'm not doing what God wants here. This is probably not the best, but it's okay. It's not a big deal. It's just a small area of compromise. It's just a little itty bitty tiny thing and it's not going to be a big deal. It's not gonna be a big deal because it's not affecting anything. You understand that sin is a predator and it is always on the move and it is dangerous and it is always trying to get in so that it can just grow and it will always lead you to slavery and captivity, always. It, it kind of reminds me of when you read one of those headlines. I read one this week, in fact, um, uh, uh, Florida man mauled by pet cougar, right? And, and, and so yeah, I gotta read that. So I, I read the article and, um, and you find that there's some dude down in Florida who's got a pet cougar named Fluffy. And Fluffy snapped one day and ripped his face off. And the articles, have you noticed, they're always the same. They're like, all these interviews of people are like, well, I just couldn't see that coming. Cause you know, Fluffy was so gentle and Fluffy was, you know, just such a, and, 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 and I'm reading this and I'm like, Fluffy is a cougar. Fluffy is a predator. I know that you think you've domesticated Fluffy for a little while, but, but first of all, Fluffy's a cat. You can't trust cats. Second of all, <laughs> second of all, second of all, Fluffy in Fluffy's DNA for years of breeding, Fluffy is a predator. And you might get him to act like something for a while, but that inner nature of who he is, it's gonna come out. And if you keep Fluffy as a pet, Fluffy's gonna rip your face off of someday, okay? That's what Paul's saying about sin. You cannot tolerate compromise. You can't tolerate small sins in your life because they may feel like small sins, but they're simply small cougars that are gonna grow up and one day they're gonna rip your face off, right? Metaphorically speaking, because sin is always working for mastery. And Paul said, don't, don't you play around with it because it's working for slavery. It's working for mastery in your life. It's why John Owen, the Puritan used to say, you gotta always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no neutral with sin. You're either killing it or it's working to kill you. And, and that's what, what Paul is saying there. Now, let me pause here for a minute because I want to press in on something. I want to press in on, on how it gains mastery over us. But before I do that, let me just kind of take a moment to address um, something that's, there are people that will have difficulty with this because you're like, well, I don't, 
I'm really uncomfortable with the slavery analogy because of the history of slavery in our country. And you're like, you know, this seems like a really difficult analogy to get our minds around. Um, I understand that. A couple things that you should know though. First of all, when Paul uses slavery here, what he is referring to is something a lot more like indentured servanthood. That's what we would call it uh, today. Um, It's not the kind of kidnapping and forced labor um, along ethnic lines that would have characterized our slavery. Uh, It still wasn't a great economic system. Let me be clear on that. But it's, it's, he's not referring to, to, to the kind of slavery we're familiar with. Paul makes clear in 1 Timothy 1 that that kind of slavery is categorically wrong. Okay. Second thing is Paul himself says, verse 19, he's like, hey, this is just a, um, uh, go to the next one. Uh, ver- there you go. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, to help you get your mind around this, I'm not endorsing an economic system. I'm not endorsing anything. I'm just using something you're familiar with to illustrate a point. So don't let this analogy throw you, okay? All right, so back to the text. What are some of those things that Paul says would always work for mastery in our lives? Because some of you are a little confused. You're like, okay, when I sin, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like I am a slave to anything. It feels like I'm doing what I wanna do. Paul says, yes, that's true, but you need to look deeper because behind every choice that you make, whether sinful or not, is a calculation of what you think you need in life to be happy and fulfilled. And so the motivation behind everything you do is ultimately going to be, is this going to help me achieve that happiness and fulfillment and security that, that I need? Right? And that's because Paul has explained, follow this, this is a point he made in Romans 1, that all of us in our nature are worshipers. Now, when I say that sometimes, people who are not religious say, no, 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 not me. I'm not a worshiper. I don't sing or bow down to anything. I'm like, that's not what worship is. Worship at its core is not singing. It's not going to church. Worship at its core is when you attach, watch this, ultimate value to something. When it becomes so important to you that you feel like I couldn't live without that thing. Without that thing, life would not be worth living. Without that thing, my life would not have meaning. I just can't imagine being happy unless that is a part of my life. Paul says, whatever that is, is going to begin to control your behavior because you're gonna be willing to do whatever you need to do to get a hold of that thing. That's why he used the word in verse 16, the word offer. Now you'll see it in verse 16, verse, he says offer. If you, that's, a, that's, a, that's a religious word. You're offering yourself to this ultimate thing as a means of, of, of this is what will make me happy. And so I'm gonna do what I do so I can get a hold of and hold on to that thing. Let me give you a few examples, this may help. Um, uh, there's a billion different examples, but David Pallison, the Christian counselor says, you can group them into four main categories, what he calls root idols, I-D-O-L-S. Idol is a false God that you worship. He says, here are four root idols of which all the other idols can be grouped in. This is helpful for me. As I go through these, I want you to think about which one is probably the truest of you, okay? So you just kind of answer that question as we're going through it. He says, firstly, you've got root idols of power. You have people who do things because what they do is gonna help them get more power. This could be through status, through achievement, through money. You love those things because they help you get and hold on to power. He said, secondly, you've got idols of control. There are people who want everything to go according to their plan. And when they look into the future, they wanna know that most of the things in the future are going to go according to their plan. Their kids are gonna live where they want their kids to live. Their kids are gonna go to the colleges they want their kids to go to. They're going to retire in the means and the time that they retire to. And their health is gonna be a predictable pattern. These people don't like uncertainty. They don't like things that are unstable. They want things to happen on their terms and according to their timetable. 
they don't even think about it in terms of retirement. They also think about it in terms of you, right? You felt these people because you're always going to do it their way. And if you, if you mess with it their way, they get irritable, they get impatient, even angry. Those are the idols of control. He said, thirdly, you've got idols of approval. There are some people who just crave to be accepted by others, to be praised by others. They just can't be happy unless people are happy with them, unless they are attractive to others and people admire them and praise them. So for these kinds of people, criticism is devastating to them because you're getting at their core identity. Not being affirmed enough is devastating. Feeling like they're not attractive enough is devastating. Feeling like their their husband or their wife doesn't think they're attractive is devastating. Getting picked last for any kind of thing is devastating to them. A lot of times these people are cowards. They're okay, they don't do the right thing, not because they don't know what the right thing is and not even because they don't wanna do the right thing, but because they're afraid that they'll get everybody's disapproval if they do the right thing. So they'll cave on their convictions because they need people's approval more than they need anything else. And so they can't stand up to their friends. Here's your fourth category is pleasure, pleasure. Some people long for physical delights sensual, you know, pleasures. Now, again, that's going to be across the gamut. It could be sexual pleasure, could be a nice house, good food, nice car, going on the right vacations, creature comforts. Like that's what the good life is, is lots of creature comforts. And so I'm going to pursue that there. Power, control, approval, and pleasure. Again, just a little heart check. Which of these four do you feel like is your biggest one? Everybody turn to your neighbor and be like, I know what yours is, okay? So I, I was thinking about you the whole time. And then you think about yours. By the way, okay, just be clear. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. Power, control, approval, and pleasure. I mean, that's a normal part of life. And, and, and we seek those things. Listen, it's when they become central in your life. It's when they become ultimate. Something you can't live without. Something that compels your obedience even over what God wants, something that matters more to you than, than God. And you're like, I can't be happy in life unless I have that. That's when it becomes enslaving. We always say around here, false worship is when a good thing turns into a God thing and thereby becomes a bad thing. In fact, Paul uses a very illuminating word to describe the nature of sin. And when I read verse 12 a minute ago, some of you had your Greek New Testament open and you noticed the word and you thought, is he gonna come back to that? And yes, I am, all right, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Oh, this is such an important Greek word. The word passion in Greek is epithumia, epithumia. Thumia means desire. Epi means huge. So it's like big, huge desire. Now, in fact, the word epi literally means um, on top of. So what you got to get this image is of a desire that's stacked upon desire, which is stacked upon desire, which becomes this gigantic tower and it's so weighty that it just takes over your soul. So for example, you're like, I desire money. We all desire money, we all, that's why we have jobs, okay? But you start thinking, unless I make a certain amount of money, unless I have this kind of lifestyle, unless I get to this salary level, unless I got this much in the bank, unless my 403, you know, whatever, 401k has this much in it, I can't be happy, I can't be secure. I can't, I, can't, I can't have peace of mind. I'm gonna live a second class life until I get to this rung there. It's taken over, it's become an epithumia, it's become a controlling desire. Or for example, I want a family. Nothing wrong with that, okay? Nothing wrong with wanting to get married and have a family, but you start thinking, there's no way I can be happy unless I get married. There's no way unless I can be happy unless I get remarried. There's no way I can be happy until we have kids. There's no way that I can be happy if my kids don't live close by. There's no way I can be happy if my kids don't make the decisions I think that they're supposed to make. 
And so you become very controlling. And if life, if your family is, is not what it should be, you feel like life's not worth living. You're worried about it all the time. You become resentful and jealous of other people who have the kind of family that you think you want. Or how about this one? I, I, I want to be noticed. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with you know, wanting people to like what you do and like who you are. But you start thinking, I got to have my coworkers approve of me. And I got to have my boss say good things. And my husband and my children got to recognize my value and commend me. If not, if not, I'm going to nurse resentment and I'm going to be insecure and depressed. Or I really, really, really want a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Nothing wrong with that. But you're like, I just can't be happy. I just can't be happy until, until that's a part of my life. And I will compromise whatever standard I need to in order to be able to obtain that. Or how about this one? I just want to be well and healthy again. I just want my body to feel good. Nothing wrong with that. But you start thinking, I just can't be happy until my body is healthy. And so I'm angry at God and I can't be happy. I can't have joy and depressed. I'm angry at God. Again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things I just named. It's when they become your masters that they lead you toward death. Tim Keller says that there are three surefire tests that will show you when something has become a spiritual master. These are the first tremors of death in you, okay? He says, number one, number one, epi anger. Uh, by the way, I added the phrase epi. This is not a real word, okay, just so we're clear. Um, anger becomes epi anger. Here's what I mean by that, okay? When something blocks you from getting a good thing, well, you get upset, that's normal and it's fine. But if something blocks you from getting an ultimate thing, something you have to have, you get epi angry. You rage, you snap because that thing or that person has come between you and the thing that you gotta have in order for life to be good. So epi anger, here's your second sign, epi worry. If something good in your life is threatened, right? Then you worry and that's normal. If I found out my kids were in danger right now, I would be worried. That's normal, okay? But if something ultimate in your life gets threatened, you become paralyzed. You don't just worry, you have epi-fear. You become anxious, so anxious you can't think right, right? You develop all kinds of issues, and I'm not trying to diagnose anything, but I'm saying you develop all kinds of problems, and, and, and at least spiritually, if you're just looking in the spiritual realm, what's contributing to that is, I just gotta have this, I've gotta have this. And, and, and without this, life is not gonna be worth living. And so you, you, you obsess with it. Or, or thirdly, epi-sadness. If, if you lose something good in your life, you lose a loved one, you, you lose a job, you lose a situation, even a possession, you get sad and you cry and that's okay. It's normal, it's natural. But if you lose something ultimate, you despair. You don't just get sad, you get epi-sad. You fall apart, you feel like life is not worth living. Those three emotions point to where something has displaced God as the spiritual master of your heart. So just ask yourself, where, where do those three emotions most often get provoked in you? Where in your life have you gotten the angriest, anger that you couldn't shake? And where do you most frequently get angry? Um, um, uh, what causes you the most worry consistently? What, what, what has caused you the most sadness, a grief that, that you just cannot shake? I mean, just so we're all on the same page here, I've told you mine before, but if it helps you to understand that I'm not up here as some like, you know, perfect guy who's mastered this, I, I'll tell you, I, I've told you before that uh, the two of uh, those root categories, the two biggest ones that, that kind of like resonate with me are control. For me, um, uh, I like things to go the way that I want them to go. 
Um, and money, um, the proof of that is uh, my first year or two of marriage, like many married couples, our biggest fights were on, about money. Because I was like, I need to have a certain amount in the bank so that I can feel like we're going to be okay. And I was just afraid I was gonna open up the you know, bank account. There's just nothing left. And, and it was like paralyzing to me. And it, it, it just was, it led to this because I needed control. I needed to feel like I could promise and guarantee the future if I was going to be, to be happy. Um, and secure. Um, another one has always been approval. I've told you that. Uh, approval. I, I feel like I just need people to respect me and to look up to me and talk about me being good in order for me to be happy. And so I translated that into success of the church because that was a way that people would admire me if the church was successful. And so the fact that I, I, I depended on approval led me to all kinds of honestly irrational fears. I've told you this before, and it's silly even saying it now, but I, I'll just, it's true. Um, even after the church had grown, after we'd moved to Briar Creek, um, and, and we were in here. I remember driving up one Sunday morning into church and I, I, there's like 3,000 people that are part of our church at this point. And I'm like, this is the weekend where everybody at once decides we're gonna go to another church, right? Because most of you guys, you're not, I mean, it's like you can just leave and go to another church if you want. So I'm like, this is the weekend that no volunteer shows up. Everybody says, you know what? We are sick and tired of him telling the same stories and we're tired and he's not that good of a preacher. We're going somewhere else to church. And I come in here and on Sunday morning, it's just me, big old room, my wife sitting around the front row and she's got her, you know, AirPods in. They didn't have AirPods back then. She's got her ear, you know, she's got her headphones in listening to Matt Chandler because he's so funny as a preacher. And so she likes him better anyway as a preacher. So I'm like, you know, that's going to happen this weekend. Now, that's irrational and stupid, but the reason is because it went back to a kind of a core fear of mine. And that is, I really need approval. I need approval. And the way that I'm going to get approval is by being successful and it just was controlling to me. It controlled my emotions. It made me epi angry and epi worried and epi sad when things didn't work out. Paul would shake his head if he hearing me say that, he'd be like, yep. And everybody's got one of those. Everybody's serving somebody. You gotta serve somebody. Or maybe Bob Dylan said that, but he was getting it from the apostle Paul. Cause Paul was, that's his point. Don't you understand that if you present yourself to anybody as obedient slaves, well, your slaves are the ones that you obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience that leads to righteousness. In other words, every spiritual master besides God is going to lead you to death. I don't mean death like hell, that's ultimate death. What I mean is death like if you're enslaved to approval, your life gets plagued by constant self-pity, envy, hurt feelings, feelings of inadequacy. Like I said, you'll always be a coward. You're not gonna be willing to do the right thing if if it gains you disapproval. If you're enslaved to pleasures, you won't be able to say no to the pleasures of food or sex or pornography or shopping. So you'll spend yourself into debt. You'll get hooked on pornography. You become an alcoholic. Again, I'm not trying to unpack complex things. I'm just saying that part of what contributes to some of these things is I've got to have that to be happy. And it's death being worked in you because you become addicted to it. If you are enslaved to power, you become domineering you become vengeful, you become self-promoting, you become harsh, you even become abusive. If you are enslaved to control, you worry all the time. You're obsessively worrying, you're losing your temper a lot. People around you start to feel manipulated. They start to feel like you're just using them for your purposes. And that feeling by the way is true, because you are. You've got people even in your family that you're like, I need you to play this role in my life. And if you're not doing that, I'm gonna hate you right? And I need you to be this. I need you to be there. And, and they start feeling control because you desperately depend on them. Now, again, I just want to be clear. I realize that I'm in some pretty complex emotional stuff. And a lot of times there, it's not just spiritual factors. A lot of times there's emotional and there's trauma and there's even physical factors. So please don't take this as any kind of diagnosis of you or anybody that you know. 
I'm just saying that, that when you're looking at it through this spiritual lens, what Paul is saying is a lot of what is behind some of these things is ultimately, it's an ultimate thing to you and you've become its slave. It is your master and you got to have it. And that has induced, that has introduced the power of death into your life. So he comes to verse 23 and he says this, watch this, for the wages of sin is death. Now, verse 23 is a verse many of us know, and we think of it as a perfect little summation of salvation. And it is. But in context, Paul is talking about death in you right now while you're alive. In the book of Romans, listen to this, death and life are not just conditions that you go into in the afterlife. Death and life are things you experience right now. And what Paul is saying is, if you live with any other master besides God, it's going to lead you to spiritual death. It's going to introduce all these insecurities and jealousies and unable to control yourself. Probably the worst of them, or the beginning of them at least, it's just this thing that I can't ever be satisfied. Uh, you know Joby Martin who preaches here sometimes, um, down in Jacksonville, Florida, Church 1122, uh, another one of my favorite preachers. Joby tells a story about this that I think just like perfectly, and it just sounds totally like him, so I'm not gonna be able to do it justice. But he said, when I first moved to Jacksonville, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, he said, one of the first things that I got invited to do was go to the dog races. He said, I've never been to a dog race. He said, so I go there and there's all these people with money out and they're gambling. He says, and uh, I'm just sitting there, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. He says, and they got all these dogs, these greyhounds that are behind these gates on what looks like a miniature, you know, horse racing track. He says, and then all of a sudden, the, 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 the announcer comes on and says, here's Rusty. He says, and I look and all, he said, everybody just goes crazy. And this little mechanical rabbit, you know, gets, starts getting dragged around the, the court. He says, and those dogs, those dogs lose their minds. He says, they're starting to you know, beat against the gate, trying to get out after that rabbit. And then they open that gate and these dogs tear off after that rabbit. And man, they're just chasing that rabbit. And that rabbit's going around. They're chasing that rabbit. He says, and then right before the finish line, he says, Rusty just sort of magically disappears. He says, just disappears. He said, I didn't even see where it went. Just disappears. He said, now imagine those dogs back in the kennel that night. And one of them's like, man, I, I almost had Rusty. I almost had, I was right there. Another one was like, me too. I almost had Rusty. Man, one day we'll get him. And, and then one says, hey, you think Rusty will be back out tomorrow? I bet you he will. And, we, and, we, and we're like, what dumb dogs, right? Like, like, come on. I mean, you know, you, you never get Rusty. You never catch Rusty. Rusty, you're never going to catch him, right? And, and, and Joby says, not so fast though. Because every single morning, some of you, your alarm goes off and your alarm might as well be, here's Rusty, right? And you jump out of bed and you're like, today's the day. Man, I'm gonna get that promotion and I'm gonna get that level of income. I'm gonna meet that person and things are gonna be awesome. And every day you go through it and you never quite get Rusty, but every day you get back up and you run again. Joby said, maybe the saddest part is there are situations where something goes wrong and one of the dogs actually catch the little mechanical rabbit. He says, now imagine that experience for that poor dog. Right, because for his whole life, he's been running after this rabbit. He finally catches it. He tears into that thing. He's like, this ain't a rabbit. Right, he's, you know, he's like, what is this, right? And Joby says that people who do these things say that if that ever happens to one of those greyhounds, the greyhound will lose a significant amount of motivation to run the next time. And that, only Joby can say it this way, but that's where we are dumber than dogs. He said, because some of you have found that rabbit. Some of you caught it, right? You're like, you're like I did it assistant manager, assistant to the regional manager. Boom, I got it, I, I made it, I'm, I'm at the top. And you're chewing through it and you're like, that's just not what I thought it was. Or, or you're, you know, you're with that person and you're like, eh, I thought, but it's just not what I thought it was. But 
being dumber than a dog, which sin makes us dumber than dogs, you're like, well, I must have just called the wrong Rusty. So I'll just get a new Rusty. And then that'll be the one that fills me. And even the dogs aren't that dumb. But you and I constantly give ourselves to these idols that just lead us to greater and greater depths of death. You see what Paul says in verse 21? Go back to your verses. What fruit was produced then from the things you're now ashamed of? Right? I mean, the outcome of those things was death. Can't you look and see that? Can't you see that Rusty wasn't even a rabbit? Can't you see that you gave your whole life chasing something that you probably wouldn't find? And then if you did find it, it wouldn't be what you wanted it to be to begin with? No, he says, see, the free gift of God, though, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says, see, there's another master that actually gives you the life you're looking for. He's what your soul was created for. The best part, he doesn't even require you to work to obtain him. He gives it as a gift. He gives you his love and his acceptance and security as a gift. You see, every other master besides God, every other one has a condition. If you will work for me, and if you can obtain me, I'll bless you. Right, so here's what money says. Money says, work hard enough, get into the right school, get the right job, get the promotion, hold on to me, be wise with your money, choose wisely, win the lottery, whatever it is, and I'll make you happy. And if you don't do that, if you fail me, I'll make you miserable. You'll live a second-class life and you'll never be happy. Romance, romance says, hey, find me. Make sure you meet the right person. Make sure you're married to the right person. Make sure you got somebody. Hey, you gotta be skinny enough. You gotta be pretty enough. And if you're not skinny and pretty enough, you're never gonna find me and I'm gonna curse you because you're gonna be without me. Paul says, but Jesus is the one God, the one master that says, no, you don't have to work for me. I'm gonna give you everything I have as a gift. I'm what your soul was created for and you don't even have to work to obtain me. You just receive it like a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life, not in heaven only, but now it's eternal life right now. And it's in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and it's received through a gift that is eternal life. Eternal life is not a condition in heaven. Eternal life is a condition you experience today. Paul says, this is the only spiritual master that'll satisfy you. Cause see God, God is more secure than money. Right, because God can give your life more meaning and give you more security than money ever could and God never crashes or dips below 10,000. And God is more fulfilling than romantic love. In fact, the, the, the tenderness that you long for, the, the, the specialness that you long for, the security you long for, the arms you long for were actually his arms. That's what you were created for. Knowing God is better than having earthly power because what greater power could there be? than to know that the sovereign God who controls every molecule in the universe has commandeered all of them for your good and his purpose. God is better than physical health and wellness. Why? Because he says, I'll give you abundant life no matter the condition of your body and I'll give you eternal life that can never be taken away. God is better than achievement because I promise you hearing well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus enter into your reward is better than 10,000 trophies made out of plastic that nobody's gonna remember anyway. No matter what you compare God to, he wins every time. So I love how Tim Keller has a quaint little way of saying this. Jesus is the only master who, if you find him, will satisfy you. And the only master, if you fail him, will forgive you. Every other master says, if you fail me, I'll curse you. And then when you find them, you find out they weren't really rusty. They weren't really a rabbit. They were just this empty kind of thing. So Paul says, turn your heart to Jesus because he's the master you're created for. So again, in conclusion, there are two things Paul tells you to do to have the life that you wanna have. First is reckon yourself dead to sin. Reckon that God has told the truth about you even when you don't feel it. Believe it. And what will happen, watch, 
is all of a sudden sin's power over you will begin to evaporate. It won't be able to hold you captive. It won't threaten you. It won't be able to say, this is who you are. This is all that's in your future because you'll say, no, yes, that is my past. That is true Satan. But God has declared that I am a cherished son or daughter. God has declared that I am dead to sin. God has declared that resurrection is in me and resurrection is my future. So sin, you don't hold captivity over me anymore because I am a child of God. And all the promises of God for me are yes in Christ Jesus. And I promise you, you'll approach situations differently. In fact, here's what I was thinking this week um, in this, there's a place up in Lake Gaston that my family and I will sometimes go for, for R&R. And, um, you know, it's right there by the lake and um, there's, you know, around lakes, there's like ducks and flocks of geese or whatever you call them. I guess it's flock, gaggle, whatever. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a group of geese and, um, you know, geese, even out here in the parking lot, they act like, like this is our place, y'all just visited, right? And usually, usually it's sort of live and let live. We all get along, you know, us and the geese. And sometimes my family, like my kids and I, uh, I remember one time we're out there and we're feeding, you know, bread to the geese. Everybody's happy. And all of a sudden one of those geese kind of bows up a little bit. You ever had this? And they got some long wings. And all of a sudden one of them kind of, you know, he just sort of, he starts strutting toward us and he's got his wings out. Me and my four kids, all of us instinctively are like, ah! you know, we run, we run back. I get about four steps, okay? And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a goose. It's a, it doesn't have fangs, it doesn't have talons. You never read an article about goose, malls, man, and children. You never read that. So I get about four steps. I'm like, I'm scared because I've forgotten who he is and who I am. Now I'm remembering you're a goose and I'm a man, all right? So I got about four steps and I turn around, I was like, and I went back at that goose, okay? That goose, and I start kicking that, no, no, I, I didn't kick the goose. I didn't kick the goose very far, okay? I should clarify that. But, but I was like, I know who I am and I know who you are. And I don't care how wide your wings are, you don't threaten me anymore. What Paul is saying is, sin puts those big wings out and you're like, well, who, who are you? I, you don't threaten me because this captivity is not, it doesn't belong to me anymore. And this is part of something Jesus put on the cross. It used to terrify me. It used to hold me captive, but Jesus has spoken a stronger word and I believe him, not you. And you reckon yourself dead to sin. Then you present yourself to God and you say, God, show me how to live in ways that are consistent with life. Because this greed and insecurity just didn't go with my new life anymore. You know, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, really curious little thing, he says, he says, take off his grave clothes. Why, why would he take time to say that? Because he's trying to show us living people shouldn't wear dead people things. What Paul is saying in Romans six is very similar. Jesus raised you from the dead, take off those gray clothes of insecurity and greed and anger and worry and all that stuff because they don't belong to a living person who's been raised with Christ. So present yourself as somebody who is alive to God. You want the life that God has for you? You reckon yourself dead to sin. You present yourself to God as alive to him, okay? I want you to bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses. Bow your heads. I'm gonna leave you just a minute here to sit in this, okay? I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit show you where you need to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God and where you're not presenting your members of your body as instruments of freedom and life and righteousness. As believers are doing that, listen, if you're not a believer, you've never accepted Christ and you're like, I, I'm not even sure I've begun, you can do that right now. But just surrendering control of your life to Jesus and receiving him as savior right now, literally right now. You can say it to him in your own words. And if you do that, I would just ask that at the end of the service, you tell one of our pastors or prayer team members up front or you tell the person that invited you 
But for the rest of us, let's just sit here for a moment. Let's let the Holy Spirit apply this, and then our worship teams will come, and they'll lead us.